And welcome to episode 62 of Fratello on Air. This is the second episode in our interview series. Today I'm joined by Ben Hodges, our resident Fratelli, and we are going to talk to Ben about one of his musical idols. Why don't you talk to us, Ben? Tell us who he is. Yeah, thanks, Rob. And uh, yeah, good to be on the podcast again after our last sort of F1 uh, iteration of the Wasp podcast. So, um, who we're talking about today is one of my favorite musicians in the field of uh, metal. So heavy metal music, loud guitars, loud drums, heavy metal singing, screeching. Um, but Misha Mansour is the founder and lead guitarist of the band Periphery. And Periphery, in the grand scheme of the metal genre, are seen as one of the guys in the top of their game, You know, all proficient in their instruments, all incredibly technically uh, amazing. And the sound recordings, the audio recordings are all fantastic. So, yeah, one of uh, my favorite musicians, one of my favorite bands at the moment. They've only existed, you know, in my realm since 2010. So it's a fairly recent band. I've been listening to heavy metal music since the 90s. Um, But, yeah, they are becoming one of my all-time favorite bands. And I was able to uh, grab some time with Misha to talk about one of his other passions. Which happens to be watchmaking. But before we touch on Misha's shared love of watches, I'm just curious because, Ben, forgive me, you seem like a nice, mild-mannered, you know, regular kind of guy. How the hell did you get into such heavy music? What happened to you in your childhood? Well, I think, uh, I think, I think it's interesting because, yeah, I, I have a normal nine-to-five job. You know, when I was able to go to the office, I wore a tie, uh, wore a suit, wore smart shoes. And Heavens went to forbid. an office. Uh, yeah, it went, went to an office with, uh, you know, very normal people. But... Uh, yeah, in the in the background, I am this heavy metal crazy nut who, you know, I just love the genre. I love the sound of it. Um, I've always kind of, I wouldn't say go against the grain because, you know, you know, this this type of music is popular, you know, underground, but there is a lot of popularity to it. Um, but I've always just mm-hmm. kind of appreciated things outside of the pop culture uh, phenomenon. So pop music was never my thing. I always avoided it like plague. Um, and metal was just sort of the perfect antithesis uh, in that era, you know, the 90s, that went against the, the established pop acts. I never really consciously gravitated towards anything. There was never any sort of thought in my mind as a kid, like, oh, I don't want to go with the grain. I was just aware of several grains and picked the ones I liked the most. So would you think that your statement, if it were, of like, falling in love with metal music was a conscious decision or did you really just gravitate towards it because of the aesthetic or was it just the idea of counterculture that appealed to you first and foremost i wouldn't say it was the counterculture thing i mean if if there was the counterculture culture thing it'd be more like uh the punk punk movement which was definitely going against uh the typical music norms um you know doing everything in their power really to do the opposite of normal pop tunes sure but um, you and i are roughly the yeah. same age right we're both what mid 30s right correct me if i'm wrong uh, i'm early 30s but yeah that's we're oh, not okay. too far off <laughs> all right so what are you 32 33 uh 32 this year okay okay so okay 31 all right so i'm i'm five years older than you but i would say that we grew up in relatively the same generation and you know we missed punk we missed the big punk movement really so like for our generation i remember when i was a kid maybe 
maybe it was the emergence of like what we would now say is rap music from like the embers of R&B, the real R&B and hip hop and whatnot. Maybe that was the thing that people my age specifically gravitated towards, but also metal seems, seems like the kind of thing that guys our age would have gone to, to make that kind of statement that people in the early mid eighties might have uh, found punk for, you not think? True, true. But it, it's not just metal music I'm into. So yeah, I am also into a variety of different music, not just heavy. Um, Celine Dion? Not, not always avant-garde, you know, maybe some Celine Dion. But yeah, there is some, uh, you know, pop music, power ballads, which I know RJ loves. I like um, Celine that Dion. That I like. Yeah, okay, fair enough, mate. <laughs> I really do. Let's, let's not go there. <laughs> in what, just in music or? <laughs> uh, actually, yeah, for once, it is entirely musical-based, yeah. I mean, Celine's a legend, what can I say? But um, she's not my type. I would admit she does have a very powerful voice. Uh, yeah, just not always uh, the sort of tunes that I'm into. But yeah, it's not just metal music, but... It's a genre where I feel the closest with, you know, I, I go to the gigs more often than any other sort of music genre. I go to all the, the festivals that celebrate heavy metal music, such as the Download Festival in Donington Park. Um, you know, I've been visiting there for, for decades now. Um, so it's just sort of something that's been ingrained into me. But I'm also a, a musician myself. And what I like about metal is that they really explore what the instruments can do you know they don't just follow the same patterns or the same chord progressions they really try to explore the the limits of what you can do musically and i know they do that in other genres such as jazz and jazz fusion but with with metal it just it uh, resonates a little bit more with me than those kind of genres although i do listen to jazz as well um, and appreciate it so I'm seeing a bit of a thread emerging here. So they push the, the musical instruments to their limit, to their technical limit, to their artistic limit, and they challenge their listeners and their followers. And I, God, I bet those gigs are a lot of fun to be in. I bet that's a real experience. I bet that's something you miss uh, following COVID. Oh, massively. And, and uh, funny enough, Periphery were one of the last bands I saw um, back in 2019. I think it was November 2019. I saw them at the O2 Forum in London. And uh, it was a fantastic gig. Unfortunately, one of their guitarists had to pull out for personal reasons, so they they were a, they were a man down. But it was still a massively energetic performance. The crowd loved it. Um, there was a particular song off their new album, uh, the latest album, which was Periphery Four Hail Stan. Um, it's a song called uh, Blood Eagle, and when that one kicked in, the crowd just went completely insane. Mosh pits, circle pits. All sorts went on. Uh, I stood back because, you know, 31 years old, I, I, I used to get into that and get into the throngs of that kind of thing. But nowadays, I like to just sit back, appreciate the music, appreciate uh, um, seeing them from a distance and watching the, the chaos unfold in front of me. So you, uh, you're able to appreciate it on that new elevated level now in the same way, I guess, you appreciate Formula One and the same way you appreciate watchmaking. It's all about like the mastery of a very fine craft with you, it would seem. Yeah, exactly. That's, you know, what is the, the most extreme version of this? Uh, so for motorsports, that's F1. For music, it's metal. For watchmaking, it's uh, Grubel Forsay, Richard Mill, that kind of thing. So yeah, I do sort of uh, tend to veer towards what is the extreme version of any particular of my hobbies. But I find with the crowd at, uh, at a metal gig, yeah, there's a lot of sort of chaos unfolding, but there's also a lot of camaraderie. I find if you fall down, there's someone that's going to pick you up immediately. They don't really want to hurt you. They just want to be in this experience together, um, however extreme that might be. But in terms of a crowd sort of uh, you know, not hurting each other or you know, just trying to make sure everyone's having a good time, I find they're the best because 
I've had the experience of gigs where I've seen people like Bruce Springsteen. I saw him in Hyde Park and uh, the guy next to me put his cigar out on my arm, <laughs> which was a really unpleasant experience. And I didn't do anything to deserve it. But um, that just shows you the difference between the sort of more established pop acts like a Bruce Springsteen uh, versus the metal and the, the crowds that they kind of uh, uh, they gravitate towards those gigs. Well, yeah, I mean, uh, you're absolutely right. I've been uh, elbowed in the jaw by like uh, histrionic women at Catherine Jenkins concerts in the past um, because uh, I was ogling too hard, I think. But yeah, I know how you feel. Yeah, absolutely. Totally with you. Um, and perhaps, you know, given this sort of camaraderie and this environment that you're, you're talking about, it's it's no wonder that Misha is a, a fan of Fratello um, because we, I believe, have that same kind of environment when it comes to watchmaking. And perhaps no wonder that he's a fan of watches, given what you said to me. And I'm I'm sure you and he share quite a few the same motivators uh, in your hobbies and pursuits. So how did this uh, meeting, this interview that you've conducted come about? In a very interesting way, because um, like like most things, I ex- first experienced things via the online world and the social media world. And uh, for me, it was just finally finding his account on Instagram. You know, once the algorithm figured out that I like uh, that type of music and decided to promote more of his posts. Um, you know, I uh, saw that he was on there and decided to follow him. Uh, this was probably sometime last year. So all throughout the the lockdown, I was kind of uh, appreciating all the antics that he was getting up to. You know, he was obviously in uh, quarantine at some point, so he wasn't doing too much on the on the outdoor life. But he was, uh, you know, showing his uh, recording studio, showing his guitar playing, um, and I enjoyed all of that. Um, but then, what really surprised me is that he started posting pictures of his watches. And, you know, not just the sort of um, typical you know, smartwatch or, or that type of watch. These were sort of interesting mechanical watches, which uh, I'd never realized or never even imagined that those kind of things would cross over uh, as seamlessly as they did. Um, but he was sharing his you know, true passion for the watches. Um, and it wasn't until early part of this year, I think he posted another one of his watches. I can't remember which one. Um, might have been a Rolex GMT Master II and blue and blue and black bezel. Um, that I just yeah. decided to reach out to him and say, um, oh, I see you're into watches. Uh, I write for a watch website. Uh, do you mind if I ask you a few questions about your watches? And thinking nothing of it, thinking that's just going to be lost in a sea of messages that he receives on a prob- probably on an hourly basis. Um, so I thought nothing of it, and I pretty much uh, forgot about it, actually. And then uh, it was only a matter of hours later that I got uh, a lot of responses back from him. Um, and I was just you know, kind of over the moon because never would I thought that I would uh, be, be able to interact with one of my favorite musicians, but also on such a, on a personal level as well, you know, one-to-one level. So we exchanged a few messages. Um, I said about putting some questions together I thought would be applicable for him. And he came back with these fantastic responses, uh, which were loads more detailed than I initially uh, anticipated. You know, I thought he'd say, oh, yeah, I like this one because of the color. I like this one because, I don't know, it had a nice face on it or something. But he was talking about the movements, saying, oh, this is in-house. I could see the mechanics of this one. I like the history of this brand. I like what they were doing with their marketing. You know, he was going into these these crazy levels of detail. So he was truly passionate as well. And I believe he said, you know, this was a quite recent thing for him. But he was he goes in deep, you know, with anything in his life, music, cars, uh, watches. He just he, he goes in complete 
uh, you know, full house. Well, it doesn't surprise me. I mean, to become one of the luminaries in your field, to get to the top of your game, as he obviously is uh, with music, you have to be that kind of person. I think you have to throw yourself in 100%. And I was scouting through his Instagram page as well, and I did notice that there's a lot of cars on there as well. There's even him sitting in what looks to be a kit car of some description, which reminded me greatly of our our fellow Fratelli's passion, Fratello Racing, their own Instagram channel where they build their own um, remote control buggies and race them around the office and elsewhere. Maybe we should get Misha to come and visit us in our new headquarters in The Hague and uh, do a video as well. You know, uh, sit down with his watches, go through them, have a look, have a real chat and uh, let him try on whatever it is we have in with us at the time. But before we organize that, let's get around to this interview. So we've done a show like this once before. Balaj and I conducted a post-interview breakdown of the Lapinist's responses to questions we sent him via email. Now, we're going to do something similar here, but we actually have the audio from Misha. So am I going to be you, Ben? Am I going to ask the questions? Yeah, if you be me. Okay, and then I'll we'll talk you. about yeah, the uh, responses from Misha. Okay, so I'm going to ask the questions that Ben posed to Misha, and then we're going to play Misha's audio response. Then Ben and I are going to have a quick chat about what he said, what we think about it, and uh, what we can post to him next time we get the chance to talk. All righty then. So let's roll to our first question. I'm Ben Hodges. I'm not going to put your accent on. Hello. Hello, Misha. Welcome <laughs> to Fratello. And Ben Pip Pip Tally Ho. Um, <laughs> Misha Mansour, welcome to Fratello. Before we get started, I'd like to express how much of a privilege. God, you're fawning already. Look at you. <laughs> Blowing smoke up his backside. Well, we all know he's a superstar but all right he's also just one of us he's one of our one of our watch fans one of the watch fam one of the fratelli he's just a bro okay here we go okay <clears throat> i'd like to express how much of a privilege it is for me to have you join us on our site the last time i got to see you guys live was november 2019 at the o2 forum london sadly without mark that's the guy you mentioned before i guess that's but right, a yeah. great show nonetheless it was made even more special by becoming periphery's first ever live album the following year Awesome. So you're on it, Ben. I'm in it. Yeah. It's actually, oh, uh, you can't hear me, but you know, there's, uh, I'm definitely there. Awesome. So it was fantastic to be part of that crowd for that, especially when Blood Eagle kicked in. Obvious question first, but how has it been the past 18 months with limited touring? Honestly, I have been very fortunate in the past 18 months. I've uh, been keeping quite busy, taking care of the businesses working on stuff with the band, working on music, solo project, side projects, all that fun stuff. Uh, nurturing some of my hobbies that I've always wanted to kind of get into. Um, I've just, I've been trying to make the most of this downtime. I don't really uh, mind being home from tour. I kind of love it. So <laughs> it's uh, it's been nice to have time to work on these other aspects of my life and my other interests. Um, I realize it's been difficult for many, so I definitely consider myself very fortunate in that regard. Well, it sounds like he's been keeping himself busy, eh? Yeah, exactly. I mean, um, he does mention how the, the downtime was really beneficial to him, you know, obviously being respectful of all the people where that downtime wasn't possible and they were dealing with, uh, you know, their, their friends and family and health issues and, you know, having to deal with that and the, the, obviously the services and and life kind of pausing almost so you know he's respectful of that from his personal point of view though it was time for him uh as a touring musician to stop for a minute and actually 
enjoy what he's uh, amassed over the years and you know appreciate what his what he can do maybe do some more practice at home and learn some new things and create new things from his studio it seems seems like he was pretty set up to uh you know quarantine with a lot of amenities at his disposal to kind of still enjoy life and not let things get too down we would hope so and i guess at the time uh, away from tour has at least enabled him to explore and deepen his, his watch passion and that's uh, only to the benefit of us and our community uh let's have question number two <clears throat> have you guys been busy sorry I keep trying to do it, but I, keep, I just can't get the right tone. Oh my just, God. I don't know what it is. It's very elegant. It's like sort of a blue blood kind of richness to your voice. But, you know, I can't. maybe if I got some cotton wool and stuffed it in my mouth. Um, <clears throat> I'm Ben Hodges. Hello. Have you guys been busy in the studio or did you use the time to take a break or walk on some solo projects? Sorry, I totally mispronounced the word work then. I, don't, I just said walk. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know what I'm doing. I'm definitely going to leave that in. <clears throat> Hi, I'm Ben Hodges. Have you guys been busy in the studio or did you use the time to take a break or work on some solo projects? Insert answer two. So as I alluded to in the last response, um, we have been writing new periphery material. It's very preliminary. And as we learned with Periphery 4, there's a lot to be gained from taking our time with it and taking breaks between the writing sessions and assessing the work that we've done. So we're going to continue with that sort of format and that sort of flow. But already the stuff that we're writing is super promising. I'm, I'm very excited about uh, the vibe of things. I'm not entirely sure how it's all going to pan out because we're going to just continue working on that all year. Um, I also finally put together a solo album after 15 years. Uh, I was proud enough of it to put it out but i'm sure everyone will hate it I, I i'm glad it'll just be out though to be honest that's is probably more of a cathartic thing um and been doing some work on some side projects like on insurers uh, which has been a lot of fun yeah so it sounds like um not only has he been able to sort of work on his uh, solo stuff but also he's able to work on the new periphery album um actually very very recently he didn't announce this when we were having our conversations um but he did uh, announced the release of then his new solo project album by the uh, under the name of Bulb. Um, so that's something that he's put out recently on Spotify, and I've been able to sort of listen in on occasion. It's mostly in instrumental stuff. So uh, him obviously working in the studio and performing and playing to himself. So yeah, it was uh, it was quite cool that he was always he was um, referencing to that while I was speaking to him at the time. So that was quite cool. But it's very exciting to uh, hear that the new Periphery album's on the way. So, um, yeah, looking forward to hearing that. I like the sound of Haunted Shores. That sounds awesome. Yeah, that's a, a side project that he works with on one of the other members from uh, Periphery. So I believe this is the same guy who missed out the, the tour last year, which is a guy called Mark Halcom. So he's, uh, yeah, he's uh, performing with uh, Periphery on this kind of side project. So, you know, he... Um, Misha's a, a busy guy and he's making sure that he doesn't limit himself to one uh, performance, one performing act. It's kind of a spread of all the genres that, he, that he's interested in. So not sort of uh, pigeonholing himself, which is always uh, quite interesting from a musician. Very nice. But with talent like that, you're never going to be without work, are you? I mean, what's the worst that could possibly happen if you like find yourself without a band? You could work as a session musician for anybody. It's just unbelievable. His technical mastery of the guitar is something else. Yeah, but he's also a businessman as well. So he's uh, he got some side projects. He 
I think he has a, a line of mineral water um, out in California. A line of mineral water? What does yeah. he do? Squeeze it from his own teat? Goodness <laughs> sake. Yeah. Honestly. So he's uh, he's an entrepreneur as well. So he's able to sort of um, do all these things and, and, you know, purchase some nice watches, purchase some nice cars off the back of uh, his success, really, and uh, appreciate it. Well, that's nice. More power to him. I want some of his water now. <clears throat> yeah. I'm Ben Hodges. I came across your IG account quite late, but it's been a blast following your antics. It's been a blast. You're as bad as me when I refer to things as like neat and everybody laughs at me for being like a middle-aged man from the 1950s. Oh, it's been a blast, Sonny. I wanted him to get on my old. side because I was asking him this, all these questions. I want him to, uh, you know, show that I'm keen. Okay, yeah, that comes across. Definitely. So did the nudes that you sent him straight away afterwards. A blast <laughs> following your antics, especially during quarantine. It certainly kept my spirits up. But, oh, wow. <laughs> we all know you weren't that close to, like, falling to bits. You got a lovely wife. You got a home. You got, you got a hobby. You know, you seem pretty together. You weren't, you weren't about to collapse on us, were you, Ben? <laughs> I, I, to be honest, yeah, I'll, I'll swap all of that for Misha. That, that, that'll be Good a great grief. time. <laughs> I, I, hope, I hope your missus doesn't listen to, that, to our podcast. That's for sure. I won't point her in the direction of it. Trust me. <clears throat> I'm Ben Hodges, but I also took note of the sick watch. <laughs> Sorry, that was completely my fault. I didn't read it at the end of the sentence before I started it, but I also took note of the sick watch shots you were sharing. How did you get into watches, baby? <laughs> Insert question three. Also, find phone number for marriage counselor. <laughs> as far as watches go, it's kind of interesting. Um, I didn't really wear watches much. Maybe when I was in high school, I had like a cheesy g-shock at the time it's funny because i like g-shocks now but um spencer had this uh fossil watch that like i guess he had just bought the, these other watches for himself and he wasn't wearing he's like do you want this and i was like yeah this is really cool it's a skeletonized fossil watch you can see the inner workings and i realized like this thing is just working off of math and kinetic energy and from an engineering standpoint i found it so fascinating so i started to look more and more into this stuff and i was wearing it all the time and i was like oh i wonder like that's a pretty entry-level watch. I wonder what it's like if you spend a little bit more money. I started doing research about it, and yeah, just fell right into that rabbit hole. Uh, and uh, you know, here we are, a bunch of years later, and I'm in deep. You know, but uh, I just find them fascinating, and I really respect the the merging. Sorry, message got cut off. But I really respect the merging of art and engineering that goes into a well-made watch. And I find it fascinating how, like, you know, especially nice watches can be accurate. I think I consider them, and I tell people it's kind of like vinyl. Like, I'm well aware that, like, a quartz watch or an Apple watch or whatever can do a lot more and do it more accurately. But it's kind of this tangible thing that you've got that you get to interact with that is beautiful for its faults and yet really phenomenally amazing at the same time. So... That's probably what I find so fascinating about watches. You know what? I've got a lot in common with this guy when it comes to how he got into watches. And I'm not talking about the watches themselves, although bizarrely, I did have a Casio. That was my first watch, um, an F94W, I think, in 1997. And I also had a fossil watch, one of those big tick ones that my ex-fiance bought me years ago that um, spanned the seconds around the dial as, as time progressed. That was awesome. Um, so I, I get it. Uh, I get where he's coming from with, with the interest in that regard, but also just the way that he, he describes the merging of art and engineering. 
Now that to me, that is like that is what watchmaking beauty is in a nutshell. How about you? Yeah, I mean, uh, similar to you, actually, I, I started off um, with G-Shocks. Uh, I think that's a pretty common occurrence. That's the the first kind of watch most people get. Uh, I never had a fossil watch, um, but I had very similar sort of uh, what I call mole watches or shopping center watches. Um, so yeah, I, I definitely share that kind of area of it. Um, but I do find it um, interesting that he, he took an interest in skeletonized watches. You know, that's not something um, most people necessarily gravitate towards in the first outing. They they prefer to see just an, a legible dial and you know appreciate the design. Um, I find it's it's later on that most people start to take uh, an interest in the mechanics of how it's all put together. But he seemed to jump in the deep end quite soon. Oh, I totally disagree with you. I I went through the skeleton phase immediately and then straight out the other end um, as as quickly as I'd entered it. I um I think that I was just bewitched by the whole idea of watchmaking. And before I knew how a watch worked, it was that magic that really drew me towards it. And I had several of these, I think, cheapo rotary skeleton watches, and they're just fine. You know, I hate skeleton watches now, by and large. I really can't stand them. I think they're a mess. Now I just want, I want classic design. I want, I want um, well laid out and perfectly proportioned dials and dial elements and a good use of color and texture and fine finishing on the case. And, you know, be damned with the movement as long as it's, as long as it's good and it works and it stays within time. You know, I don't want to see it on the dial. No way. I went straight through that phase early doors. You're telling me that you like skeleton watches now? What kind of high end skeleton have you got in your collection, Ben? <laughs> I don't have any skeletonized watches, but I, I did. Daytona, man. Up. You know, you don't have a Richard Mill. You have a Daytona. It's got a solid uh, if dial. If I can afford a Richard Mill, I will. But I've got a. Um, Would you? The new... Really? Yeah, of course. Yeah, one yeah. of the rough and the ones. I like those. Oh, yeah, I do yeah. like that one. It the lightweight uh... nature of them, and uh, mm. I like the the, um, the construction bridge kind of uh, look of them, and how the cables are, are sort of pulled tight so that holds the moving in a place. I, I find that fascinating. But anyway, we're going a little bit off piece. So. Yeah, skeletonized watches. You know, he was in in the deep end. Um, but what I what I really like is his response to um, kind of acknowledging smartwatches, the Apple Watch, as a more usable tool, as a more accurate tool. But then he doesn't mind about that because this isn't about uh, being as accurate as possible. This is about the appreciation of the mechanism. And he he gives this great analogy, which is something I've never really thought of, and actually it's it's quite it's quite apt. Is how he likes he likens it to vinyl vinyl records, which uh, I don't know about in in Germany, but in, in the UK are surging in popularity. Um, people seem to appreciate the old sound and using uh, turntables. Um, and he likens mechanical watches to that because it's not about being the absolute best. You know that would be sort of high quality lossless streaming at this point. Um, he's he's all about sort of that old school and keeping a tradition, and that's very very similar. Um, to mechanical watches, you know, and I, I find that a really good analogy. Yeah, I think it's perfect. I think it's beautiful and it's succinct. And as I often write in articles on Fratello, better, in inverted commas, isn't always better. And it's about the emotional connection between uh, a wearer and their watch, just as the same, just in the same way that listening to vinyl gives you a different kind of, a different feeling, transports you to a, to a different place. Um, so we're all fully on board with Mishu. Sounds like a genuine chap. Sounds like he uh, thinks in the same way that, that we and many of the Fratelli do. So let's find out. I'm Ben Hodges. What are some of the watches in your collection? So the first uh, proper watch I got was this Oris Arctic Skeleton. I think I was influenced by that fossil watch to get like 
sort of a higher end skeletonized watch and I feel like a lot of skeletonized watches look kind of cheesy, but that one is kind of a classy execution. However, my mom has that because she just commandeered that watch one day and she's just like, can I have it? <laughs> and I, I just felt like she should have it. She seemed to like it so much, made her happy. So she's now in possession of that. I, I no longer have that watch, uh, but, but it makes her very happy. So, you know, why not, right? Yeah, so it's interesting that he's he's jumped from the the fossil skeletonized watch to what he perceives as a sort of more uh, higher end skeletonized watch, which is the Oris Arctic Skeleton. Um, I, I think it's a, it's an interesting watch. It's a almost a forgotten watch in the Oris collection. You know, you think of the Aquas, you think of the Diver sixty five, big crown, point of date, but uh, the Arctic is not one that really sort of uh, comes off the top of your tongue when you're talking about Oris. But it's interesting that he he jumped into that and actually jumped into a you know very interesting Swiss brand, an independent Swiss brand as well. Um, still on the on the lower end of the market, you know, very much an, an inclusive luxury product. But uh, still, yeah, very interesting that he's uh, launched into that pretty soon. I mean, it's a good choice. We love RS as a brand. We um, we've worked with them, of course, on our own special edition, um, the the very well received Oxblood Big Crown Pointer Date, and. This is an interesting one. It's a nice skeleton as far as they go, in my opinion, because it's it's not too loud. And I think it's super cute that he gave it to his mom. I think it's really nice. I gave her my uh, Nomos Tangenta, uh, not because she really wanted it, but because I wanted her to have it. I wanted her to have something nice to wear when she went to church. Because she'd been wearing these swatches that I gave her years ago and uh, wasn't quite up there. So moms of watch lovers should all have good watches. It is essential. If you are a good son or daughter, and your mum's wrist is bare or not adorned with something befitting her station, sort it out. And uh, an Oris Arctic skeleton, that's a weird choice for a mum for sure, but she picked it herself, so more power to her. All right, what's next? Insert Nomos. Don't insert it anywhere weird. <laughs> <laughs> Very sharp lugs on a Nomos. Um, okay. Uh, after that, I got a uh, Nomos Ahoy Atlantic Datum. I really like the Nomos style. I like that it's, you know, a German watch. It's in-house movement. I I, I love the, the Bauhaus aesthetic. That was really cool. That was good bang for buck. Maybe the, not the most accurate watch in the world, but it's just very cool. I get compliments on that a lot when I, um, when I wear it out. It's a nice sort of somewhere between a sporty and a dress watch, I suppose. I don't really think of watches that way anyways, but I don't know. That, that that watch I thought was really cool, and I really dig the Nomos stuff. So uh, that was the next one that I got. Well, I'm very impressed. He's chosen one from straight down the road for me. Um, obviously a brand that's very close to my heart for several reasons. The Nomos Ahoy Atlantic Datum, or I think they call it the Atlantic Date these days because I anglicized most of the uh, catalog, much to my chagrin. Warm yeah, mine too. Yeah, it's annoying. And it, they did it while I was there. And I was, I think, in the room full of uh, 11 Germans and Rob Nudds. I was the only person that said, let's keep it German. I didn't see any reason to pander to to the rest of the world. But there you go. They they did it because they wanted to be more um, understandable, especially state, state, especially stateside. And I'm sure it worked to a point. But here we are. Uh, he's using the the original terminology, probably because he bought it before the name shifted from german to english this was a really popular watch 
within the Nomos building, a load of people, male and female, wore this watch every day to work. I saw more of them in that building than I ever saw anywhere else. And uh, it's, it's a real sleeper. A lot of the Atlantic blue dials in Nomos's catalog don't look anywhere near as good in the catalog as they do in real life. All Nomos watches have an amazing relationship with light and the way they interact with it. The white dials are not flat white. They are silver plated. So they have this grainy particulated surface, which really uh, comes to life in in natural light and in candlelight, bizarrely, as romantic as that sounds. Um, they really are great. The blue dials are no different. There's a real depth to them. And I'm not surprised that he likes this one. It's it's one of those, it's about as close as you get with an almost to a, a go anywhere, do anything kind of watch. And, and I love it. What do you think of this one? Well, I think you mean the Blau Dial, if you want to keep it on that German uh, German naming Blau. or German translation. Atlantic Blau. Yeah. Or is this so schön? <laughs> <laughs> but it's interesting that he's already talking about the, the Bauhaus Academy aesthetic. You know, he's already talking about these things where most of the watch lovers don't really discuss or, or, or know about, you know, especially if you're just entering into this realm. So it's interesting that he's already, he's already finding out about that stuff and talking about in-house movements. Like it's just a normal thing. Uh, it's, uh, it's re- he's really keen on that, I can tell. Well, he's talking to the one and only Ben Hodges. He knows his audience. He's trying to impress you. <laughs> he's trying to butter you up. You think that you want to be his friend, but maybe he wants to be your friend. Let's face it. Well, you know? yeah, I'm trying to swing some uh, uh, free tickets when I get the chance. But uh, as long yeah, as, as you're trying to swing sunshine, remember this is a family <laughs> podcast. I'll have none of that here. Uh, all right, let's see what's next on his wrist. After that, I got... Uh, yeah, I got the dark side of the moon, which is, you know, one of the big boys. I was always fascinated with that watch. Um, I always liked the Speedmasters. Something very timeless and classic about them, I suppose, because especially like the old school Speedmasters have been around forever. But then the dark side of the moon is this ceramic variant. I really like the way that it sat on my wrist. That was perhaps one of the first watches I like tried on my wrist and. I thought it was cool, but then when I had it on my wrist, I was like, now I love this. And it sort of taught me about the wrist test. And there have definitely been watches that I thought I was going to love. And I put on my wrist, and I'm like, mm, not quite feeling it, and vice versa. And the dark side of the moon was an example of the opposite. So after I tried it on my wrist, I was like, yeah, I definitely have to find some way to get this. Great. So it's only taken, what is that, three watches before he, he ends up at the Speedmaster. Um, and not just the sort of normal Moonwatch. He's ended up on one of the more avant-garde uh, Speedmasters, the Dark Side of the Moon. Um, I actually think this is one of the the best edition Speedmasters they've ever done. I don't believe it was a, a limited edition, but it was definitely a special edition. You know, using the ceramic case, uh, the sort of ceramic dial as well, the textured strap, the buckle ceramic. It was all you know, very very interesting. So. To end up at that watch, that's pretty cool. And if you're looking at the sort of heavy metal aesthetic, the black and the red, that's very much sort of a, a metal demonic color, um, which I can sort of see plays into his uh, music genre of choice. So yeah, very, very good choice. I would like to see this one with like a, a studded strap, like a leather strap with like shiny metal studs on it. Um, I think that would look pretty badass. Although I must say, I'm not a huge fan of this watch. I've never really been all in on the dark side of the moon or any of the ceramic stuff from Omega. I don't mind ceramic stuff from certain brands, from like your really high-tech Autorology brands or from a specialist like Rado. Fine, fine, fine. I'm all for it. 
I don't mind a ceramic dial. I really like the dials on the Seamaster 300M, for example. I think they're gorgeous. But the cases, for me, I just don't think ceramics are the material for a sports watch. I really don't. And uh, I, I really loathe the increase in size that comes with ceramic cases in the Omega catalog. That's the one thing that I will nitpick at. You know, we don't have to love everything. It's okay to have a reason if you don't like something. And this is not my not my bag, but I can certainly see it working on his wrist. But yeah, give me a studded strap and I'll buy the whole look. He's got a big wrist and I think it does suit him. But um, I, I agree with you on the size of the dark side of the moon, but not so much the diameter. I think the diameter... 44.25 millimeters is absolutely fine. Um, totally wearable. The lug shape allow it to be you know, freely worn on the wrist. Hey, I think it's a thickness hey, that uh, hey. throws people off. I didn't say anything against the diameter. I said I didn't like the fact they made it bigger. I don't think it needs <laughs> to be made bigger. I've got a 56 millimeter Mudmaster in my collection. Thank you very much. Nothing about wrist size here. There's no, there's no like limit <laughs> to diameters. I'd wear a wall clock on my wrist if I liked it. No, my problem is, I think, like, why the hell did you have to do that? And I think that it's something to do with, like, trying to balance out the reduced visual impacts of black, or maybe it's something that they're hiding from us about the technical, uh, I don't know what's the words, intricacies of manufacturing ceramic at certain diameters or certain whatever. Maybe it's a hell of a lot easier to do it at 44 than it is at 42. I would just love to see. You know, it isn't just the Speedmasters that annoy me. It's the Seamaster 300M that really gets my goat. You know, they released that new black one, that all black type one, that completely ridiculous successor to the illegible hublot that Jean-Claude Beaver used to love. You know the one I mean? The one that came out this year? And Invisible visibility or the other way ever, around. Some yeah. nonsense like that. <laughs> and we all swallowed it like eager little minions that we are. But that 300M in black ceramic that Bertie did those fantastic photos on, Listeners, if you haven't seen this, go to Fratello, search for Omega Seamaster 300M. It should be the most recent article on the model, I guess. It's an absolutely gorgeous all-black piece with a rubber strap. Bertie has shot it on some gorgeous green rope background. It looks a million dollars. It doesn't have a date. It's super clean, super sharp. And if it were only 42 millimeters, it might be the one that finally got me over the Seamaster 300M hurdle. But I just can't get there. Drives me mad. Stop making them bigger. It isn't, it isn't that I can't wear a watch that size. It's that I don't want to. You know what I mean? I like the old size. Yeah, it's true. They did make it bigger. Um, I, they probably could make a 42 millimeter Speedmaster. I mean, they were pretty close with the Apollo 8. It still used the same diameter, but it was much thinner because of the uh, 1861 movement or 1863 or 4, whatever they renamed it. Um, but the 1861 derived movement, at least, yeah. So they, they possibly could have made it a bit smaller. Interesting stuff. It's an interesting conversation to have. Uh, hopefully our listeners will chime in in the comments if they get this far into the podcast and they want to let us know what they think about ceramic watches and the occasional upsizing that Omega is uh, is guilty of. Um, maybe you think it's a good thing. You let us know what you think and we'd, we'd love to hear that. Okay, let's, let's find out what else is on Misha's wrist. Then I managed to snag my uh, Grail watch, which was a 116500 LN Panda Daytona which I remember seeing that. I, I actually didn't do a wrist test for that one, but I just remember seeing that being like, that's, that's the watch. That looks how a, a, a watch should look. It says everything I want to say. And I love how sort of incognito it is to a non-watch person. I, I kind of like the silent flex. Like To those who know, they know, and to everyone else, it's just a watch. Like, they probably think it costs a hundred bucks, which to them is a lot for a watch, you know. Um, 
And, uh, you know, long story short, I, I came across a, a good sort of deal on it. So it's nice. I can wear that watch a lot, and I do. Uh, and it, that one fit the wrist perfectly, which made me very, very happy. Well, 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 I bet you are over the moon at this. Um, I don't know whether you two spoke about this before um, dropping the Rolex Daytona into this list, but it seems a little bit suspicious. Seems like you and Misha are in cahoots. What's going on here, Ben? <laughs> Uh, so I did know this was coming. He, he did share this on his uh, on his Instagram feed, so I, I knew it was going to come my way. But I, I must admit, yeah, I did start fangirling pretty hard when I heard that he was uh, pretty proud of his um, Rolex Daytona with the Cerachron bezel. So yeah, it was, it was very exciting for me, you know, as a as a Daytona owner, which uh, you like to remind everyone that comes uh, comes your way on the podcast or wherever. But uh, yeah, it's a it's a watch I'm very proud to own. So yeah, when hearing Misha talk about it. And how you know even it's a, it's a watch that he knows he can sell at a much higher premium than he bought it for. He still wants to hold on to it, and I feel the exact same way. I don't care what the intrinsic intrinsic value is getting up to. I just want to hold on to it and never let go. If I were you, though, because um, you know I'm not a Daytona fan. I like the old, the really old ones for sure. Of course, I do. I like the pre Daytona Rolex chronographs a lot more. But I would wear your Daytona box on a big gold chain around my neck. Um, (laughs) You know, that's pure luxury. Uh, Guys, if you've not read the story behind Ben's Daytona box, that's another article you should check out on fratellowatches.com. It's a cautionary tale, but one that is hilarious in my opinion and uh, a great story. Well worth what it costs you emotionally and financially. That's all the best stories are. All right, let's let's find out what else is going on in Misha's world. Then actually, uh, I did a trade with a buddy... um for Zenith uh, uh, Stratus flyback rainbow. I don't, I don't even know the model, but I remember he was wearing it. He's a business partner, one of my best friends, uh, Brian Gilbanov. And uh, and I remember he he was wearing it. I was like, that's a cool watch. And let me try it on. I was like, well, oh, that's that is really cool. And uh, he lost a bunch of weight. <laughs> I think he went vegan or vegetarian, lost a bunch of weight. He was like, yeah, I just don't wear it anymore because it looks kind of wacky on my wrist. And I have a bigger wrist than he does. We ended up trading some gear. I think I traded like a guitar and an amp for that. Um, and I used that watch a lot more than I was using that guitar and amp. So it ended up being a very good trade. That was a watch that like was the, the opposite kind of. Because I thought that was going to look terrible on me. And then... Actually, like on my wrist, I was like, wow, I actually love this. And I wear that watch a lot. Cool. So, uh, yeah, going from a Rolex Daytona to a Zenith uh, Stratos flyback. So obviously keeping with the chronograph theme. Um, I was quite interested to hear that this was his next watch and uh, and the way that he got it, you know, not not just sort of walking into a shop, seeing it on the shelf and wanting to buy it, but actually seeing a buddy of his uh, business partner wearing it and thinking that might look good on him. Um, and you know, very interesting that uh, his friend went vegan and lost a lot of weight, and therefore uh, a lot of the mass in his arm was gone. And it didn't look as uh, didn't look as kosher as it was before. So, yeah, um, Misha taking it that way, I thought that was quite interesting. Um, he, he is, uh, I would say, he's quite a, he's quite a big guy. So this is kind of watch that would suit his wrist, but also the fact that he he traded his guitar and his amp for it. You know, that's even more interesting and. Uh, uh, from his perspective, it's a good trade. I don't know if the, the, the other guy feels the same way. So maybe it was a, a mutual trade that uh, works out for everyone. Yeah, that's definitely what we're all searching for. Um, they're far too rare, those occasions. They don't pop up often enough. I, I often find myself hoping that I'd find somebody wearing a watch that I desperately desired. 
willing to trade for something I was happy to see the back of. But yeah, um, good stuff. And uh, yeah, I'm really, I'm really envious. It's a nice watch, the uh, Zenith Stratos flyback rainbow. It really is. It's um, a bit of a weird one now. It feels like it feels like it was from a previous generation of Zeniths, and that's no bad thing because I really like the old stuff that Zenith does a little bit more. And I think that of all the classic brands, they perhaps reached a new Zenith before. <laughs> the brands managed it so well, I'm a bit of a yeah. decline at the moment although I must say I'd, I'd like we need to get more of them on Fratello we need to get more of these watches in our hands and uh, have a good look at them and see what's what because I don't see enough Zeniths in the wild that is my honest honest feeling so let's go back to Misha um, I will once again adopt the Ben Hodges mantle <clears throat> have any watches gained any sentimentality I'd say probably the only watch I have that sentimental value is probably the Daytona, just because it's kind of like Grail achieved, if that makes sense. Um, yeah, I think all the other ones I could trade, and, and that'd be fine. The Daytona is the one, you know, especially sort of the the proof of it is the fact that like currently the prices are out of control, so I could sell it for far more than what I paid for it. And I'm still holding on to it because, yeah, I think I, I think that one's just one I'll keep for the rest of my life. Well, he's right up your street, isn't he? Do you agree with yeah. him? Yeah, I think it's a, it's a good watch to be that grail. You know, if you feel like you've been working your, your life to get to that point and you managed to afford uh, and, and be in a position to buy something you've always coveted, um, I think that's a, that's a watch you don't really want to let go of. Um, and he, he said earlier, you know, that it's a watch that he knows that he can make money on, but doesn't want to, uh, for the sake of losing that kind of that memory or that uh, sentimentality to what is essentially just a hunk of metal. Um, yeah. So yeah, I'm I mean, that, totally with him. That feeling scuppers you constantly in watchmaking. Like I bought my Omega Speedmaster replica broad arrow, you know, the one, I mean, um, Last year, January. Was it January? January 2020. And I paid 2,700 euros for it. And I got it because I needed a Speedmaster because I joined Fratello and I didn't have one. And that was the one that really, really spoke to me. Now, I adore that watch and I've worn it probably 40% of the days since. You know, So that's, that's a really, really, really solid piece. It's a great investment. Now, they're trending for over four grand already. Another 15, 1,800 quid on top of it. And you start sort of thinking about the financial implications and thinking, well, wow, that would be a great turnaround. Or wow, what if I hold it? It might one day be worth 10,000, 15,000, 20,000. And at what point exactly am I supposed to turn around and forget exactly what that watch means to me or how much I've enjoyed wearing it and all the things I've been through since I've had it on my wrist and why I bought it in the first place and trade all that for money? I just can't countenance it at all. I can't imagine it ever happening. And it's a conversation I actually don't like to have. It only popped into my head the other day because I was looking on Chrono 24 because I've got my eye on a new Omega Constellation Pipam. And I was curious to see what the value appreciation of the Omegas that I had in my collection had been since I bought them and actually regretted looking, you know, I really did because it's not about the money. It should never be about the money. Not when it comes to reselling. You don't want it to be a thought in your head. Yeah. Especially when you're, you know, you're looking, shopping for something else. It doesn't, it doesn't even tempt me. That's the thing, but it makes me feel dirty. It makes me feel like I'm cheating on something I really, 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 really love and respect. And that's my Omega Speedmaster. Can I just say before we play Misha's answer um, that, Ben, it's getting really, really sexual at the moment. You know, it's getting super <laughs> ripe. 
Did you get your wife to proofread these questions before you put them out to well, a world famous I don't know. rock star? If, if you perceive it that way, yeah, maybe it's uh, that's something in your brain. I don't know. That's not me. But uh, yeah, I like how you when you said deeper there, you actually went deeper in your voice. So yeah, <laughs> I can't help it. I'm a, I'm a voice good onomatopoeia. <laughs> Thanks very much. Come on, Misha, tell us what you think. I wouldn't say my tastes have changed. I don't know. I mean, there are things that I've always thought were beautiful and I just can't justify or afford. Um, there was a point in time where I was really looking at an AP. I think it was the, the reference is a 15500 or 15550 ST. I think at that point in time, you could get them for like 25 grand and now they're like almost double. So that's probably not going to happen, you know? And even at that price, even at twenty five grand, that was quite quite a bit to ask for that watch. Um, you know, the new sort of grail because the goalposts keep moving would probably be an Alanganzona. Like if I could get like a um, a datograph or something like that, I don't know. Like that would be that would be pretty sweet. So, yeah, again, he seems like he's hitting all the targets. He's got the Speedmaster. He's got the Daytona. Uh, a Royal, Royal Oak is kind of the, I think it's the logical step. I, w- I would think if you're looking at a, a luxury product, you maybe go from Rolex to Audemars Piguet before you maybe move to uh, Patek Philippe. Or in this case, he's looking at Alanga and Zerna. So, yeah, very, very interesting sort of collecting habits he's already showing. Um, but he didn't go for the, uh, the, the AP Royal Oak in the end. Sounds like uh, the, the price kind of turned him away. Maybe he was thinking, this is money better spent elsewhere, or does it justify the cost? But um, he still sounds like he's got the lust for something a little bit more luxurious, such as the, the Datagraph as well, which is a very, very nice and tasty watch. I would go for the uh, Honey Gold version if they did one of in that metal. Uh, Honey Gold is, is my jam, baby. I'm totally with you there. I love it to bits. I, I think I recently, in an article, I wrote about the new what was it? Little Langer moon phase with an inventoring dial petitioned Langer while in a fugue state while writing this article for Watches and Wonders releases to create a special Langer called The Nuds, which was basically the little Langer with an inventoring dial in a moon, go- in a moon gold, in a honey gold case with honey gold obliques and blah, 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 blah. It's a gorgeous material. It's, it's grossly Ooh. underused. By Langer, but um, I think they do that very deliberately and they do it very, very well. My favorite Langer at the moment is probably that new black dialed Raptor Pant that they have uh, in uh, in that rich golden color. Gorgeous stuff. That's, absolutely that's gorgeous. very nice. Yeah. With, I'm probably with you with the Aventurine little Langer one, although um, my favorite current Langer watch would be the. Um, the Langer One Moon Phase with the day night indicator. So it's, it's, it's only, it's a, it's a moon phase watch. But it has like little stalks for the, the moon face, and then the disc behind it rotates on a 24-hour scale and shows the difference between day and night. So you have the light blue, and then you have the dark blue. It's a fantastic looking watch. So prior to the release of this Retropant, my number one Langer was the white gold version of that with the black dial that you just described. Do you prefer the rose gold with the white dial? I think in that watch, yes. I think that goes better with the moon face, definitely. You know, I used to agree with you 100% until I had them both on my wrist um, in Houston at a Red Bar event. And I've never been a fan of white gold, ever. I hate the idea of having a white gold watch when I could just as easily have a, st- have a steel watch. I don't want a stone watch. I was about to say a stone watch. Could you imagine? I did have a Tissot rock watch at one point. <laughs> yeah, I was thinking of the Tissot, yeah. <laughs> I blew it to pieces in a, in a moment of pneumatic rage, literally. Um, 
I was experimenting, you know, I was young, foolish. What can I say? Uh, <laughs> chiseling away. <laughs> chiseling away. Yeah. It's, my dad's a geologist. That's where I get it from. So, um, I really thought that it was a waste of time having the white gold and I still would happily have that watch in steel, but you know, the black dial really was the one that brought that day night disc that you're describing the gradients of blues to life. It was, oh goodness, the contrast was unbelievable. The only thing that gets me about this new Retropant really is just the unabashed John Player special vibes that I get from it. And uh, I can't mm. turn my head away from that. It's gorgeous. No, that is a, a fantastic delivery. Yeah, it definitely reminds me of that. Um, I especially like the new Breitling, um, is it not the, not the, the Duograph is what they called it. Yeah. In the red, gold and black dial. Oh, yeah. Oh. I mean, listen to us salivating over gold watches. I can't afford gold <laughs> watch at the moment, but yeah, I can just appreciate them from a distance. Says the Daytona owner. Okay, uh, let's move on. I'm Ben Hodges. Which watches have caught your eye recently? But I, I, know, I mean, I, you know, I, I'm after a good GMT, I think, right now. That's probably what I'm on the hunt for. Um, and I really want to find a good Grand Seiko. There's that SBGH267, which I was obsessed with. And I still almost regret not getting I could have gotten one slightly before below sticker now they're like they're almost double the price as well which sucks and really hard to find and i almost bought it but i had it on my wrist and it just wasn't quite doing it for me and i feel like it was my imagination i feel like i should have just gotten that watch but um i think ever since then i've been on the hunt for a good grand seiko i don't know if those things count as my taste changing i think it's just sort of i just want to build like a nice robust collection you know what i was in exactly the same situation i had the sbgh 267 in my hands in north carolina and i was being offered it at i think 30 or 40 percent below list i can't remember what it was as a favor just a friend you know and i won't tell you who it was and i i turned it down i really wanted a grand seiko i really liked this dial when i first saw it and had it been spring drive i would have bought mm. it there and then but what what obsesses me about grand seiko is the spring drive caliber i, I don't want to add a grand seiko to my collection and, unless it's a spring drive that's the god's honest truth now if you told me at that time when i was standing there with that watch on my wrist and me being offered it for goodness knows what would that have been it was about six thousand lists so it would have been about three thousand eight hundred four thousand something in, in that kind of um ballpark even wait even less good grief don't even talk to me about it three and a half <laughs> three and a half k four thousand four thousand dollars whatever and you told me that it would be trending for 12 15k now um on corona 24 i would have ripped your arm off and bought it but that's not a good reason to buy a watch it's a dirty reason it's a bad reason it's an evil yeah that reason. is uh not the best reason you shouldn't think about the the future value i guess you should think about the immediate value to you as a person owning it but uh, yeah, if, if I would, uh, if I had a time machine, I would go back in time to that boutique in Northern California and pretty much slap you in the face until you had bought it. Because yeah, I think it's a fantastic looking watch. And you, if you, you mentioned North California, you wouldn't be anywhere near me. I was on the other side of the country in North Carolina, mate. So if you're taking your time oh, right, machine, sorry. you'd be going to all the trouble of traveling back in time. At least get the geography right, or that'd be that'd be so annoying. You'd be where would you be? Get pick me a retailer in North. Car- you'd be in um, Topper's Jewelers in Birmingham. Just uh, San Francisco going, where is he? He'd be storming in there, kicking down the door, screaming at Rob, screaming at Ross, going, where are, where is he? Where's Nuts? Where's the Grand Seiko? And he goes, hey man, we don't stock Grand Seiko here. 
if you could you could have just picked up the phone you don't have to come in and slap me in the face you know like we we live in a modern age it's not that far away in the past this watch is only a couple of years old yeah for goodness sake travel back in time actually that's a good good advice travel back in time go to north california spend some time maybe Carmel by the sea or something like that pick up a phone ring me and say rob you don't know me but in a couple of years we're going to meet and i'm going to tell you about a mistake that you made or more succinctly mishiman saw a periphery is going to tell you about a mistake that you made that he made also by the goddamn Grand Seiko. I bet, okay, I'll do it. But here's the thing. I didn't love it. It didn't grab me. It looks, for all the world on paper, like an absolute worldie. It's just a stunning idea. Brilliantly executed. But in real life, meh. As Dave would say, yeah. meh. It's funny you mentioned about the, um, the spring drive caliper because they have a penchant putting the sort of power reserve indicator on the, on the spring drive watches. So, for this watch and the type of dial that it has, that incredible mosaic pattern, a spring dry power reserve would have completely spoiled the overall aesthetic of that watch. So, um, yes, if it was spring drive, that might have been a little bit more interesting. But yeah, if they put that power reserve, that would ruin the whole watch for me. True enough, but you don't have to have a power reserve with a spring drive caliber. It is not on every single spring drive watch. That's true. They have that watch with the, uh, I can't remember which reference, you know, they all sound like fax numbers to me eventually, but uh, <laughs> there was a particular watch. It was a dress watch without um, without too much embellishment on. And yes, it was a spring drive. Yep. So it does exist. And uh, I would love to see the more regular automatic spring drive with more dial options. Uh, I'd love to see a snowflake without a, without a power reserve. We did mock that up, me and the rest of the Fratelli, um, just to see what it would look like. We did a Photoshop. And it did look a bit weird, actually. You know, like, you spend your life griping about little things like power reserve indicators on dials when they're totally unnecessary, especially off-center ones, like you find on every spring drive under the sun, except for the ones we just mentioned. And you think that it's a quick fix and it's easy. Just remove it. It'll look 10 times better. And it really didn't. It looked so, so empty. It was bizarre. It's barren. Yeah, it looked looked Like a snowy, wild escape. Like a tundra. Like a... Yeah, unforgiving tundra a frosty frosty plane yeah it was it was not appealing bizarrely anyway um wow that was a passionate response but he really uh stoked something in me with that one because i couldn't believe it when i saw that watch and i couldn't believe the value appreciation of it i couldn't believe that i'd turned my nose up at it at the time when i had a chance to buy it below the sticker price crazy crazy man but at least i did it for the right reasons because hopefully it found a good home and it was well loved and is still well loved and is regarded by that purchaser as a fine investment. On to the next question. I'm Ben Hodges. I loved your image of the Omega Speedmaster Dark Side of the Moon. We're into Speedmasters around Fratello and have created two limited editions in collaboration with Omega. What was it about the Speedmaster that made you pull the trigger to own it? Question mark. And yeah, I might have already answered that question about the Dark Side of the Moon, but yeah, I think Speedmasters. I, you know, I like cars. I like racing. I think anything that has any ties to racing, my eye will always be kind of drawn to it. So that's probably why initially I looked at it. And yeah, I just love the design. There's some, some watches that are just, they're timeless, I suppose. They haven't really had to change them much because they just sort of nailed it. It's sort of like the Fender Strat or Tele of watches. It's like, it's actually pretty apt comparison if you think about it because all they do is just keep 
putting the same one out or reissues of old ones or whatever. It's like they just kind of got it right and they tried to reinvent it too much. It'd be a bit much. Like even the Dark Side of the Moon's a bit of a departure, but only just, right? Yeah, so with this question, it seems like uh, we're going a bit backwards in time because uh, I kind of sent him a block of questions and he just answered him one by one. So he already mentioned about the uh, the experience the Amiga Speedmaster Dark Side of the Moon, um, but I'm, I'm glad that he mentioned it previously as well. So it meant that he can go into a little bit more detail about why he liked it so much and why that particular one. And uh, interestingly, it's not the uh, the NASA space exploration part of it that he was interested in or even mentioned. You know, he's talking about motorsports. So the very, very core of the Speedmaster was a motorsports racing watch. And he kind of draws on that in his interest in Formula One his interest in motorsports, um, supercars, GT cars. He loves all of that. So, yeah, he, that's what uh, sort of drew him to the, the Amiga Speedmaster. Um, and he also talks about, you know, the uh, liking it to the, the Fender Stratocaster or the Telecaster. So a uh, very, very classic guitar shape, one of the most famous guitars ever made. Um, and they, they kind of just repeat the same thing, you know, do the same template over and over again. They do special editions, reissues of old models. But it's the same essential guitar. And it's the kind of same with the Speedmaster. He likens it as a design that they just got right the first time around and don't want to fettle with it too much. I'd say that in the uh, music scene, I'm not aware of too many guys who are super into watches, maybe varying degrees. I would say it's definitely my car friends. There seems to be much more of a car watch connection. So... Uh, and not everyone, not everyone. I have some some car friends who really love the engineering of cars, who on paper I feel like would love watches and who I've maybe tried to nudge in that direction and just haven't. It's just, it's a very, it's a very niche thing. As you go further down the rabbit hole, you know, the there's quite a barrier to entry because it's just, it can be very expensive as we know. Um. So it's not really for everyone. I think a lot of people just look at it and they're like, how is that worth that much? But yeah, definitely in the car scene, I have a lot more people that I nerd out over watches with. You know, I find this one really interesting. Uh, this is this is an answer that I wasn't predicting. I, from a young age, have kind of thought there are only so many things in life that one wants or could even buy. I never understand how sports stars that sign like $50 million contracts burn through the cash and end up bankrupt like five years down the line. I'm like, what the hell did you buy? Like a nice terraced <laughs> house in, in Hyde costs 150,000 pounds. Buy that, you're sorted. You know, you can you get all your food from the local co-op, easy peasy. You, you know, you, with that kind of money, you could probably live off a meager interest that you could get from some rather safe investments and just grow tomatoes in your back garden. You wouldn't even have to buy food. <laughs> so I think like the things that appeal to me, when I think about things that I would buy, if I had a massive windfall, I would buy a big house. I would buy the house. So I don't pay rent anymore. I just have to pay the bills and maintenance and whatnot. I would buy a nice car, nothing crazy, probably buy myself a Land Rover Defender and kit it out with one of those rooftop tents and maybe put a little fold-out table in the back so I could eat there when I'm driving around. I would buy a really nice watch or maybe a, maybe a couple of really nice watches. And I don't know, beyond that, like, what do people buy? Like shoes every so often like if i was a rock star and i had all this kind of money in the world i would just like you know there's what else what else do you spend it on 
drugs yeah i always think of that with the uh, the super billionaires and verging on trillionaires now just like how could they possibly use all of that money um responsibly you know what what is there to buy that is that expensive and I, all i can think of is like a, a fleet of super yachts which uh, mm. i don't know how much you get 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 much use out of those but yeah it's it's always a question but you know he, he's talking on the level of people that are they're definitely wealthy they're not in the super rich cat category i would say you know that the jeff bezos and the elon musks of the world um but they they have a passion for things passion for um their their hobbies but they also like to invest into those hobbies and get the most out of them as well so yeah um i was kind of hoping with this with this question he might talk about other artists who are also uh in his field that uh, i might be aware of that i might know from from other bands but uh yeah he does sort of say you know in the metal scene it's not a particular particularly popular thing you know definitely in the car world it's, it's a lot more popular yeah that's a shame um quick side note never ever pluralize elon musk <laughs> okay let's move on i'm ben hodges do you wear any watches on stage or while jamming you've never sounded more like a middle-aged white man than you do right now ben <laughs> over to you misha well jamming i'll i'll definitely wear watches on stage i don't because we tend to move around a lot tend to sweat i mean i don't think the sweat would really bother it but you know a lot of these watches don't really love being shaken and it, it seems unnecessary to, to kind of like put it through that. Maybe I'd get a beater at some point or something that I wouldn't mind saying that's not too accurate to begin with. Cause I think the accuracy of the watch would get kind of wrecked. If it, you know, spent an hour with me on stage, but, um, but while jamming, I, you know, I said, I'll still wear the watch while driving and like sim racing and stuff like that. Um, I usually just don't wear it in the shower when i'm sleeping but other than that i have a watch on most of the time so um i just want to be kind to them well he went with the jamming he's all about the jamming that's for sure so when he jams he wears watches but on stage not so much now that's a shame because that's that's you know it's a great billboard for any brand you know if he'd uh said that he might have found himself with a few calls tomorrow from richard mill or who knows Patek or Vacheron. Well, I think all are quite sort of into that sort of shock resistant technology in their watches. So yeah, they'd be a, a great showcase on stage for him. That would be cool. They could do, could do really nice special edition with them. Really nice. Yeah, but I, I don't I don't blame him because uh, not only is the, the amount of movement that he does and yeah, I've, I saw them, I've seen them a few times, most recently in, um, in uh, 2019. And yeah, they were moving each side of the stage constantly sort of throwing the head around and there's there's a lot of movement in the band a lot of energy so therefore i can understand from the sweat perspective as well sort of wrecking any of the leather straps Ooh. that he's got the watches on but also the from the sweat perspective <laughs> Ooh, um but also the uh yeah the amount of shock going through the um through the watch and it's yeah it's also the comfort thing as well because i'm a, a guitarist as well so you know i've got a guitar on the wall right now staring at me so uh, i know what it's like when you're performing at the lower end of the fretboard it's it's okay while wearing a watch but if you start moving up the fretboard you start contortioning to play some of the higher higher end of the strings um yeah it can be quite difficult quite uncomfortable with the crown digging into your wrist um, so I understand that from from his perspective, you're not really wanting to to wear a watch on stage. Although uh, he does mention, you know, when jamming, and I do like the fact that he called it jamming as well. It is a, a popular phrase in uh, in 
in music, especially in metal. So um, yeah, I appreciate that. It's not like that. I've not and, heard it before, Ben. I've even jammed myself. It's not about that. It's just the way you say it. You know, don't don't pay me any mind. I'm just I'm just teasing you. I like to jam. Yeah, fair enough. I've jammed. I've jammed all over the place. <laughs> I'm covered in jam. I've got jam on me right now. If I'm being totally honest with you. Anyway, uh, I don't want to know how. No one ever does. It's a shame because it's a really interesting story, but we'll save it for another podcast. Carry on, please. Yeah, so that's all I had for uh, for that one. All right, let's revert very quickly to Misha and sign off with Ben's parting note. This has been an honor to catch up with you, Misha. This is coming from a few of the Fratello team who are also massive fans of the music you create. But yeah, thanks for having me and thanks for all the fun and interesting questions. I've never actually done an interview about watches before so it's always fun to nerd out over them and chat about them a little bit i appreciate you guys having me well he sounds like a nice chap doesn't he we'll have to get him over to the hague sometime that would be delightful and i wonder what he'd be wearing on that note ben at the very end of the show why don't you tell me what you're wearing we're going to do our handgelengs controller as we close out today's episode sure so on my handgelengs this time and uh this is the new amiga speedmaster moonwatch um, this is the Caliber 3861 with Master Chronometer Certification. Ooh, uh, Quaxial as well. Nice. So, yeah, I'm really proud of this one. Um, I did go for the Sapphire one, and a lot of people sort of lampooned me for that Filth. one. Filth. Um, yeah, I, I, you know, I had my reasons, and I, I do want to put this up in an article why I chose this specific one. No one's going to uh, read it. I... No, one, no one's going to believe <laughs> those reasons exist. Nonsense. There, is, there are good reasons. So this is the the only nice. one they do now with Cal Cal three eight six one that has the sapphire case back, uh, in steel, of course. So you know that's one of the reasons it had the applied logo, which I prefer. It's more histor- historically correct as well, considering the early Speedmasters. Um, some of the other reasons, I you know I think if you're going to um buy the sapphire one and you want the Hesslite, wouldn't it be easier to put the Hesslite on the sapphire version than vice versa, trying to put the sapphire case back on the Hesselite version yeah i'm kind of with you i guess um i don't really hate your choice at all um i love Hesselite, but i'm also a fan of open case backs um on non-dive watches most of the time and i just think omega made two really really great watches and to nitpick over the combination of the elements that our split between the two is maybe going a bit too far. For me, though, they didn't make the perfect the perfect watch. The perfect one would have been the Hesselite on the top and the Sapphire on the back, but I'm sure there's many people that think I was just being just as heathenous as you are for having the Sapphire sandwich, so I wouldn't, I wouldn't pay it any mind. Each to their but own. in either version, the bracelet is absolutely fantastic, you know? Yeah. Um, it is a, it's a marvel of their new creations. It took me a while to get the sizing just right because you don't have... Um, the on-the-fly micro-adjust, you have to use the tool to adjust the hole. But I found the sizing that was perfect. But actually, um, recently I've switched over to the Artem sailcloth strap, um, which is a really comfortable, nice strap. It, it kind of complements the look of the watch. It reminds me of the old uh, Snoopy 2015 um, strap, which had this sort of texture, textile feel, feeling to it, which is really nice. But uh, yeah, I'm really appreciating this one from Artem straps. Nice touch. I do like I do like a strap monster, and the new Speedy is certainly that. I think it's hard to uh, find a better mainstream classic that can take so many straps so so sympathetically. On my wrist is something 
I can't actually reveal exactly what it is because it's not out yet. Um, but it's something from a small Swedish brand that I have a lot of love for. And if you read my articles on Fratello, which I'm sure you all do, and if you don't, please, please, please do. I need you to. Um, you will be please do. Please do. It'll make him feel better. Make me feel better. I need. I need a. I need a quick. Come on, win. readers. I can see him. I can see him crying now. So please read. Yeah, I'm always crying on the inside, but I get little spikes of joy when people read my articles and say nice things, um, or at least constructive things. But if you read my articles regularly, and if you read Fratello habitually, you will know already what brand I'm talking about because I have waxed lyrical about them ad nauseum. There is something coming before the end of the month, and. I must say, looking down at it now, from my lofty vantage point, I have 170 centimeters seated. It's uh, quite special, and it's quite nice, and it's um, it's a little bit different from what they've done before. Not worlds apart, but worth uh, worth adding to the collection if you if you're a fan of this kind of thing. So keep your eyes peeled. It's going to be hitting for Teller before anywhere else. So I promise you that. All righty. Well, that wraps up today's show. That was interesting. I always like to hear from other collectors, and uh, I feel like we have both quite a lot in common with Misha, really, Ben. What do you think? Yeah, it was fascinating to hear some of his thoughts and, you know, see those parallels between how I got into watches, how you got into watches, and the kind of the journey that we've all been on and how, you know, share some similarities. But every story is personal, and I think that's fantastic. You know, we may own the same watches on occasion but we all have that journey that we take in different directions and i find that fascinating even from a um a rock star perspective he's still got the same sort of ambitions uh, and and achievements sure and if any of you would like to talk to us about your history in watchmaking your hopes and dreams for what's yet to come in this fascinating hobby please just get in touch with us you can either contact us via email or you can drop us a line on instagram both ben and i uh, on Instagram, I'm at Rob Nuds, just all one word. Ben, what's your handle? And I'm at Ben James Hodges. Very easy to remember. Uh, you will find us both also, obviously, on Fratello. Uh, hit us up in the comments below this article. Let us know what you think of the interview. If there's anything you'd like to hear from us in the future, any rock stars or sports people you'd like to see us talk to, and we'll be back with you soon. So until next time, stay safe and keep on ticking. Bye.